Good morning, Cornerstone Church. I love it. You're talkers. Let's go. It's a privilege to pursue Jesus with you this morning. I'd love for you to open your Bibles, if you have one, to Luke chapter 1. This is a passage you can preach even when it's not December, when it's not Christmas time, and we're going to look into that today. Let me begin by honoring uh, Pastor Scott Savage. He's an incredible man of God. I hope you guys know that. Um, you can give him a—we have one fan for you, Scott. We have a well, clapper over here. Um, we have known each other for over a decade. It's kind of funny how age happens. For a long time, I was like, that's an old guy. And then uh, I kind of grew up and go, oh, we're kind of the same age. Isn't that weird how stuff happens like that? Um, but here's what I believe. I believe the biggest thing churches need are pastors who practice what they preach. And I have seen that from afar, and I've seen that from close uh, with your pastor, Scott. And so just know uh, I'm a fourth-generation pastor, and so I know a lot of pastors. Uh, and he's one of the good ones. There's a lot of bad ones, but you probably know that already, and I pray that hopefully I will not be in that category for you after today. So today I get the joy of talking about the practice of silence. See what I did there? Now, there was a monk who joined a monastery and took a vow of silence. After the first 10 years, his superior called him in and asked, do you have anything to say? The monk replied, food, bad. After another 10 years, the monk again had an opportunity to voice his thoughts. He said, bed, hard. Another 10 years went by, and again, he was called in before his superior. When asked if he had anything to say, he simply responded, I quit. <laughs> it doesn't surprise me one bit, said his supervisor. You've done nothing but complain the entire time you've been here. The title of my message today is God's Guidance Through Silence. Let's pray. Father God, we ask you, we invite you in this room. I'm so grateful, God, to be with a church family that's two and a half hours away from mine. But God, we are worshiping you today. And so God, I just ask you, this practice is really difficult, especially in our culture. And God, I just pray that for those of us who have some walls put up, about the thought of even being silent. God, I just pray that we would open our hearts to you, that we would learn from your word and we would see that maybe, just maybe, God, you are inviting us into love through the practice of silence. In Jesus' name I pray. Everybody says, amen, amen. amen. Um, two weeks ago, our church, we're a church plant. We started in a movie, we started in a movie theater. We celebrated our sixth birthday. So we're six years old as a church. Again, we launched in a movie theater and it was like any typical church. We've had like a lot of high highs and a lot of low lows. There's this thing that happened two years ago that we're still kind of dealing with. And so that's been fun. COVID. Uh, and so that's really difficult to plant a church in the middle of that. But about three years into my church plant, I realized I was operating, preaching, pastoring, leading from a very empty place. And I knew that as a, at that time, 24 year old man, I had a lot of ministry to go. So I needed to figure this out before I get burnt out. I want to finish well, like my great grandfather. I want to finish well, like my grandfather and like my father. So I really had two options. Either I do quit my church or I change my life. My dad didn't raise a quitter. And so I began to frantically search, what is a better way to lead? What's a better way to be a pastor who loves Jesus and loves his people and actually enjoys the process 
along the way. And that's what I stumbled into, which I love that you guys are talking about the practices, because I stumbled into some authors that talked a lot about the practices of Jesus. Now, I am a, again, fourth generation pastor, so it's something I've heard about my whole life, but something, and I pray that this happens for you during this series, something clicked. What used to seem as lifeless immediately became a lifeline. And here's the biggest difference for me. What used to seem like a way to mark off tallies for God became a way to mark out time with God. And that changed everything for me. And so like Pastor Scott, I found a counselor, I found a spiritual director, and I went all in. And here's a few things that I noticed in my journey of transformation. I wanted to become a person of peace So instead of just every week saying, God, I just want to be more peaceful, I began to practice Sabbath. So me and my family, every Friday night, we have a 24-hour clock that starts, and we do nothing but pleasure stack and enjoy each other and worship God and root for the Cardinals even though we lose all the time. It's amazing. But for 24 hours, I stop working. I stop worrying. And I stop wanting, which means I turn off social media, I turn off my phone, and I'm engaged with my three beautiful daughters, last man standing, a lot of pink in my house, and my wife. And what's incredible is it didn't happen overnight, but through the practice of Sabbath, I became a person of peace, not just on Saturdays, but on a Tuesday and on a Thursday. It was a beautiful thing because I made room for the grace of God. The next thing I decided is I wanted to become a person of patience. Anybody need more of that, right? And so with that, I began to read the Desert Fathers. I began to read these patristic fathers and mothers. And I realized one practice to practice patience is to practice fasting. And I love food. Like, I love it a lot. And I thought this will be so hard. And so I said, let me just fast from these other things. But I learned that's not called, fasting has to deal with food. If you're not, if you're fasting from social media, that's not fasting. It's just called abstaining. Okay. And so fasting meant I had to. And so I looked, what did the church do historically? And historically, the church would fast twice a week, wouldn't have breakfast or lunch and would break their fast once the sun had set at dinner. They would fast on Wednesdays because that was the day of Jesus's betrayal and then would fast on Friday because of the crucifixion of Jesus. And so I thought, if we've done this for 2000 years, I'm going to try this as well. And what was incredible is by fasting, I recognized through the power of the Holy Spirit, I was resisting the flesh in one area, partaking in food, And it enabled me to resist the flesh in another area, traffic outrage. (laughs) It was a beautiful, it was unbelievable sequence of events. And that's why I'm really excited that you guys are doing this. One more, and we're going to talk about this today. I wanted to become a person of love. Love sees people. Love hears people. It doesn't ram through conversations. It sees people for who they are and recognizes all of their gifts and their idiosyncrasies. And so I wanted to become desperately a person of love. And as I study church history and I study my Bible, I recognize, oh no, I have to practice silence. That's the one thing every pastor hates. I talk for a living, y'all. But I had to recognize if I'm truly going to become a person of love, which I know my wife needs, my children need, and my church needs, I need to practice silence. 
And this has been the hardest journey for me, and I hope to share some of my journey with you. Dallas Willard, one of my favorite authors, he has this quote about silence, and it might be why you are fearful of even thinking about this practice altogether. He says, silence is frightening because it strips us as nothing else does, throwing us upon the stark realities of our life. It reminds us of death, which will cut us off from this world and leave only us and God. And in the quiet, what if there turns out to be very little between us and God? What if that's why you and me can't help but turn on the radio when we're driving? We can't help but keep the TV on when we're with family. We have to have noise at all times. Is that pointing to something? It's really helpful for us as we're going to dive into the book of Luke. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they're called the Gospels. And we, it's really imperative. American Church has done a poor job of this. The Gospels are not just uh, books about how we get to a way to life, the Jesus way to life, to eternal life. It's very much that. But it's also, as we read this, uh, the Gospels, we have to see it as a biography. It's not just a way to life. It is a way of life. And so we have to be very understand, what is Jesus doing? What is Jesus saying and not saying? How is Jesus living his life, and how do I live my life that way as well? And you will see Jesus constantly in your Bibles practices silence and solitude. In case you don't believe me, allow me to name just a few. In Matthew 4, Jesus inaugurated his ministry by spending 40 days alone in the desert. In Luke 6, 12, before he chose the 12, Jesus spent the entire night alone in the desert hills. Matthew 14, 13, when he received the news of John the Baptist's death, what did he do? He, quote, withdrew from there in a boat to a lonely place. Matthew 14, 23, just a few verses later, after after the miraculous feeding of the 5,000, what did Jesus do? He went up into the hills by himself. Not convinced yet. Mark 1, verse 35, following a long night of work, quote, in the morning, a great while before the day, he rose and went out to a lonely place. Mark 6, 31, when the 12 returned from preaching and healing on a mission, Jesus instructed them, quote, come away by yourselves to a lonely place. And all the introverts are like, just keep reading them. This is incredible. And all the extroverts are like, can he be done? Matthew 17, one through nine, Jesus is with his three disciples and he sought out the silence of a lonely mountain as the stage of the transfiguration began. Matthew 26, you have, he prepared for his highest, most holy work. What did Jesus do? He sought solitude at the garden of Gethsemane. Friends, if Jesus practice silence. So should you, and so should me. But if you're anything like me, you need a more human example. That's Jesus. Like he gets hundred percent on every score. Is there somebody else who practiced silence that also isn't the God man? And so that's why I want us to turn our attentions to Luke chapter one, because we have a very normal person going through this practice of silence. In fact, he's probably more like us because he begrudgingly enters into the practice of silence. In Luke 1, we see the first time, just some context here, God appears to his people for the first time in over 400 years. From the Old Testament to the New, there is a 400-year silence. And he finally breaks the silence. This is what's fascinating. Not with Mary and Joseph, who are the parents of Jesus, but with Zechariah and Elizabeth, the parents of John the Baptist. 
Why would Luke start his Jesus biography, not with Jesus, but with John the baptizer? Well, it's helpful. The Jewish audience would know the last word the Israelites received from God was a promise in Malachi 4, 5 that says, quote, the prophet Elijah would come to prepare the way for the long awaited Messiah. So this was the last promise they heard. And then for 400 years, they heard nothing else. What happened 400 years ago today? Think about it. like that's just as especially as Americans, we can't even fathom 400 years ago, 1621, the pilgrims set sail on the Mayflower and arrived at Plymouth Rock. We just Thanksgiving 400 year anniversary this year. Did you know that? Right. 400 years ago. Get this. The multiplication sign wasn't even invented yet. 245 years ago, we signed the Declaration of Independence. 400 years is a long time. Can you imagine 400 years of silence from the God that you serve? And yet Zechariah and Elizabeth, despite the silence, continue to faithfully serve God. Let's look at verse 5. In the days of King Herod of Judea, there was a priest of Abijah's division named Zechariah. His wife was from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. Look, this is so key. Both were righteous in God's sight, living without blame according to all the commands and requirements of the Lord. But they had no children because Elizabeth could not conceive, and both of them were well along in years. I love how kind he is. Anybody else well along in years? Don't raise your hand, you know? We know. Um, I love this. Corporately here, let, let's look at this. Corporately, the whole people of God, it seems like God has forgotten his people. They haven't heard from God for 400 years. There is no king on the throne. Herod is now ruling. The Israelites are being oppressed by the Romans. But also personally, it seems like God forgot Zechariah and Elizabeth. It seems like Every generation, by the way, infertility is extremely painful and full of grief and sorrow. But in Zechariah's time, it was almost double because it was also seen as a sign of disobedience. If you didn't have children, that was because God decided to punish you for something you've done. It seems as if God's favor was completely removed from their life. It was a source of public shame. And they were old, so it was over, it seems. But yet, something incredible happens. Let me summarize for you quickly, verses 8 through 17. Zechariah was a priest. So 24 times a year, a team of priests would go to the temple, and each group of those uh, had 300 priests. So here's the reality. Most people would never enter the Holy of Holies. It was the greatest honor to be the one to light the census at the Holy of Holies. But the odds weren't in your favor. It's likely you spent your whole life being a priest and never entering into that most holy realm. But... Today, as we read this, Zechariah's name was picked. This would be his legacy forever. Uh, Everybody would talk about Zechariah, the guy who got to go into the Holy of Holies. And in this time, the angel appears and promises the birth of a son, not of Jesus, but of John the baptizer. And this son, the angel says, would cause the whole world to rejoice, preparing the way for a new revolution. The Son would cause many to repent and turn from sin, preparing the way for the Holy Spirit. And this Son would be the beginning point to start a revival of generations to come, preparing the way for the church. And how does Zechariah hear this incredible revelation of God? God finally broke his silence. God is speaking again. 
And how does Zechariah respond? Probably like you and me would. He says, how can I know this? Zechariah asked the angel. For I'm an old man, and my wife was well along in years. Men, that's how you say it, okay? (laughs) Brilliant guy. He's going to get a lot wrong here, but that was right, okay? Well along in years, the angel answered him, I am Gabriel, who stands in the presence of God, and I was sent to speak to you and tell you this good news. Now listen. That's huge here. Now listen. You will become silent and unable to speak until the day these things take place. Because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their proper time. This is so important for us. Look, if we aren't careful, when we read this passage, we assume the angel's response is that of punishment. Zechariah didn't have enough faith, so punish him. It's important for us, by the way, if you believe in Jesus, if you put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, every time you read the scriptures, understand this. In Christ, God never punishes you. Amen? How come? Because God punished Christ on your behalf. There is no reason for him to punish you because Jesus was the ultimate substitute. We have to remember that. However, read the book of Hebrews, read a lot of the Bible, do it. It's a good idea. But all throughout the Bible, God doesn't punish his children, but he does discipline. He does prune us and he prepares us. Write this down. If you forget everything, just don't forget this one. Look, silence is not a punishment. It is a preparation. See, the angel was not punishing Zechariah. I think if the angel, the biggest, if he wanted to punish him, would just say, okay, we're going to go to somebody else. We're going to wait for the next priest and let them have John the Baptist. But that's not what he did. He says, okay, you don't get it yet, but you will. And you will because I'm going to make you silent. If you keep reading Luke 1, Mary responds with great faith. Zechariah does not. But both of them end with great faith because they needed the preparation of silence. But as Americans, when we read this passage, we assume that the angel is punishing Zechariah because we can't think of anything good ever coming from silence. Research shows, actually, there's, silence is really important. Studies are saying constant noise leads to cognitive overload and brain fog. It says it reduces our ability to make decisions. So if you have big life decisions, turn off the TV and think for a little while. It also says it depletes our willpower. Have you noticed, maybe even you wake up in the morning and you're an hour, two hours in, you got nothing left. Well, maybe it's because you begin your day with so much noise. And they say one of the key triggers for anxiety is simply noise. Doesn't matter what kind of noise, just noise. This is why I'm more and more convinced that the future of the church for a long time is like, if we make the church a concert, people will come. And y'all have an incredible band, by the way. It's an incredible, like, it's a great thing. But I also believe alongside of that, I think the future of the church needs to be a little bit less of a concert, not referring to what you guys are doing this morning at all. But it also needs to be more of like a cathedral where you just come in to enter his presence And the biggest thing is I feel like we keep saying, God, give us a word. God, give us a word. But we never shut up to actually listen and see if he does give us a word. We want to talk about prayer, but we're too much talking. My prayer life has increased so much when I recognize half of praying is listening. 
silence. Look, a major, I think one of the devil's chief weapons today is simply noise. And this is a little bit easier to convince people in Prescott versus people in the valley. So you're like, yeah, that's why I like moved here. You know, like they're way too loud down there. So I I know I'm like in the easier crowd here. But silence is huge. Robert Cardinal Seurat, he has this quote, it's so profound. He says, noise wearies us. And we get the feeling that silence has become an unreachable oasis. Without noise, postmodern man falls into a dull, insistent uneasiness. Anybody feel that? He is accustomed to background noise, which sickens yet reassures him. This is such beautiful writing. Without noise, man is feverish, lost. Noise gives him security, like a drug on which he has become dependent. This noise is a dangerous, deceptive medicine, a diabolic lie that helps man avoid confronting himself in his interior emptiness. Don't you love this guy? Look, the awakening will necessarily be brutal. I think for Zechariah, his awakening was necessarily brutal by not being able to speak for nine months. But again, this was not a punishment. It was a preparation. And I hope you receive my invitation today to allow God to invite you into practice of silence, not by him forcing you to become a mute, but by, by receiving his invitation and doing it in your own accord. See, God wasn't punishing his unbelief. He was preparing his belief. Let me prove that to you. Verse 68, Luke 1, 68. You actually have in this text, it goes back and forth between Zechariah and Mary and their responses. And Mary has this beautiful prayer and praise of God for choosing her to give birth to Jesus. But now Zechariah has this beautiful song as well. Both of them responded differently in the beginning, but both of them respond the same in the end. In verse 68, it says, Blessed is the Lord, the God of Israel, because he has visited and provided redemption for his people. These are the first words he speaks once he's able to finally talk after his son was born. He says, Because of our God's merciful compassion, the dawn from on high will visit us to shine on those who live in darkness. And the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. Hear me. Look, Zechariah went from doubting God's provision in his own life to now believing in God's provision for the whole world. What did it? The practice of silence. By simply getting silent with God. And I wonder, is God extending that invitation to you today? Write this down. We block the Holy Spirit when we walk in a hurried spirit. We block the Holy Spirit when we walk in a hurried spirit. That's noise. Sound. We're constantly running from one thing to the next. And God is saying, I have invitations for you. I have words of encouragement for you. I have rest for you. But you are too fast. It's too loud. You're not paying attention to my invitations I'm extending. And so, as I mentioned earlier, my life changed three years into our church plant because I started to adopt some of these practices. But something strange happened. It was at the beginning of last year, 2021, I grew very discontent. I became very depressed. It was very scary. Like it terrified me. 
I really talked to a lot of my people around me. My wife got pretty concerned. And so I kind of went away. and was like, Lord, what are you calling me to do? I want to make sure that I am leading from a healthy place. And so uh, there's a million different signs that led to this. I don't have time to talk about it, but I eventually led to the conclusion I need to take a sabbatical. Doesn't everybody come to that conclusion? Isn't that like how, how convenient? <laughs> you know, I just need to like not work for a while, you know? And so I realized like, hey, and so I, I met with our elders and our board and we're at a, a place where it was possible. And plus I was like, okay, I'm going to take a sabbatical in July. Nobody at our church is in church in July anyways. You know what I'm saying? So let's run with July. And so from July 1 all the way to the end, I turned off my phone. I got away. I wasn't on the TV. I got silent. I thought it would be fun. It was boring. Okay. But something incredible happened. The biggest thing I did, and I think you guys probably do this a lot. Anybody else kayak around here? Um, I bought a kayak. I'm all about that life. So I bought a kayak because I'm such a, uh, I'm a hurried pace person. So I went to the lake and just slowly kayaked the lake and in silence. Just say, God, I don't know what you want from me. I don't really have words, but I just know I want to be with you. And kayak is (laughs) exhausting, by the way. A great time. I tuned up my bike. So either every day I'd either go on a kayak ride or, or, or a bike ride. And every day I was just silent with God. And my director said, you don't have to say anything. Just be with God. And it was one of the most profound moments in my life. What's incredible is almost the entire month I heard nothing from God until the very end. And it was so good. And here's the principle I, I actually came away with. Often the point of silence is not to come away with the word but it's to get away from the world. See, Paul talks about this a lot. In order for God to fill you up, you have to first be emptied. In order for us to put on righteousness, we must first put off our sin. And for a lot of us, we just need to put on silence by putting off the world. The world is constantly bombarding us with just, it's like, It's these subtle temptations and these subtle ways of thinking, and it actually controls. Uh, For so many of us, the Bible doesn't control our thinking. The media does, right? And the radio and YouTube and all these things. And so I'm telling you, I grieved a lot. I was bored a lot. I worked out a lot, and I prayed a lot. At the end of the sabbatical, I didn't have a ton of words, but I had him. And it was such a privilege, and I've been leading from such a full place since. The biggest thing is I never felt more loved by God. Let me encourage you. Silence is probably the greatest practice out of all these practices because I get to preach that one. So it's going to be the best one of the series. I'm totally kidding. But I think silence, here's why I think silence is the most challenging, but possibly most rewarding. Because reading your Bible, that can lead to arrogance because you're like, of course, God, you love me. I read the Bible this year, you know? Praying, it's like, yeah, God, I prayed a ton. Giving, look at my financial statements. You're lucky I'm here, God. Silence, there's no reward. It's not, yeah, I'm just good at doing nothing. You know, like it doesn't really feel like you're earning God's grace at all. You just did nothing. Congratulations. But that's the beautiful reminder of these practices. Hear me, this is true for silence, but all the practices. Look, the practice of silence is not about removal to get approval but it's making space for God's grace. God isn't here going, oh, I'm going to give you more grace now because you earned the level. You're this great Christian now. He's just saying, no, I have so much for you. You're my child. 
but you're too busy listening to everybody else to hear what I have for you. And so we're saying, God, we're not earning our salvation here, but we're making space to receive what is already ours in Christ Jesus. It's a beautiful thing. So I want to hurry quickly. I made sure I'm not going to go over time because that's how you never get invited back to a church. And I like you guys. So especially when it's summer, I hope I'm invited here. You know what I'm saying? It's hot in the valley. Next, is it hot here too? No? Okay. Next steps. I'm going to give you some challenges. And Pastor Scott was like, these are pretty hard challenges. I thought, good. I won't be here to check and see if you did them anyway. So challenge number one, to practice. Spend your first hour of every day away from all digital distractions. I preached this at my own church six months ago, and it was, I had to rewire because I would say stay away from your phone. Well, there's a whole generation that's never on their phone, and they're like, yeah, they make sure they do it. And I'm like, okay, you get off the TV, though, you know? Yeah, a little too close to home, right? So get away from all digital distraction. We're all guilty of it some way. Some of us, it's the old school radio. Others of us, it's TV. I know for me, I grew up, my mom, I watched Full House every morning while I was having waffles. You know, that was just what we did. My whole life, I go to bed with the TV on. Don't do that. Let's just set apart some time, the first hour of every day, this week. Let's just say this week, where you don't have anything on, okay? Which leads to the second thing. Spend your last hour of every day away from all digital distractions. Neuroscientists are finding out, people who study the brain, the most, if people who are racked with anxiety and struggle a lot, the biggest, one of the biggest ways to just kind of Stop being anxious, which is almost impossible, but a huge way to help is how you spend your first and last hour of every day. If you are reading the news and hearing fear-mongering stuff, guess how you're going to wake up in the morning? Fearful and anxious. The last thing you do, your, your body, your brain in, at night is processing the last thing you were engaged with. And you wake up immediately thinking of it. What if it's, you spend that time with God's word? You spend that time with each other, or you just spend time doing nothing to the glory of God. And here's the third practice I hope that's encouraging to you, is to practice silence by repeating a breath prayer. Now hear me out. Breath prayers, there's actually, you guys should have this handout on your way out, um, or you maybe have it already. Uh, They did a great job. They kind of explained the whole history of breath prayers and the significance of breath. I encourage you to read it. But here on the back, oh, by the way, if you're watching online today, go to the worship resources and click the service extras tab. That will be available to you, to those who are online. But we're going to give you, there's different ways for you to practice these breath prayers. One of the original breath prayers is just the simple, Lord, have mercy. And so a lot of times when I'm trying to practice silence, I just go, Lord, have mercy. Because when you are silent with God, distractions come running. And it's the devil, okay? It's what he's trying to bring. You're thinking about what you're going to make for dinner. You're thinking about the Cardinals being terrible. Um, You know, all these different things. You think about the Packers losing tonight. You know, whatever. But you have this, (laughs) I'm a Pack, I'm a, I don't know what fan I am. Never mind. Uh, At least I'm not a Packers fan. Amen. All right. Now. Um, but these breath prayers, you don't say it over and over, but whenever time you feel your heart get distracted, you just have this breath prayer. And so I actually decided, let's, I'm going to give you a couple of examples. Uh, These breath prayers, they all begin the same way. Lord, open my heart. And so in your inhale, just say in your mind or out loud, if you're brilliant enough to be able to inhale and speak at the same time, but Lord, open my heart. I do it in my head, not out loud, because it's impossible. But then in my exhale, 
to trust your love. Or maybe, Lord, open my heart to trust your leadership. And then stay silent and see where the Lord will lead you. Lord, open my heart to trust your timing, to trust your plans, to trust your promises, to trust your commands. Maybe for some of you, Lord, open my heart, and it's on here, to trust your future. Maybe this is such a big one. We can never grow old saying, Lord, open my heart to trust your forgiveness. Christ has forgiven you, amen? God has grace for you. It doesn't matter what you did yesterday. There's nothing you've done to make God love you less. There's nothing you could do to make God love you more. And so what if we just, as of this week, as we're just spending time alone with God, I did this on my drive here. I didn't close my eyes, promise. But Lord, open my heart to trust your love because I need your love. You know, with my upbringing and living in this world, I keep thinking I need to earn it. Let me trust your love, God. It's an invitation to God to do what only he can do. But friends, this kind of maturity, this kind of deep level transformational work within your spirit, I'm pretty convinced it doesn't happen by just reading a ton or by serving a lot or by singing really loud. I think there gets to the point, the only way this transformation occurs is if you just make space for his grace in the silence. I invite you to practice that with me this week. Let's pray. Father God, I'm so grateful for the beautiful gift of silence, something that our culture, ah, it's so antithetical to what we do. But God, give us the grace and the wisdom to see that, help us see, Father God, that, um, so much of silence is just not necessarily coming away with the word, which we do pray happens. But God, help us just get away from the world. Help us retreat to that lonely place, not to perform for you, not to prove our love for you, not to be smart or brilliant for you, but just to be with you. Oh, God, thank you for the gift of silence. I just ask you, Holy Spirit, to empower us to do nothing this week, the first and last hour of every day, but to be attentive to your presence. In Jesus' name I pray. Everybody says, amen.